Welcome to Media Path. I'm Fritz Coleman. I'm Louise Palenker. We like to keep our eyes on the web and our ears on the tracks and our antenna raised, looking for interesting content like books and movies and art. And as you'll hear from Wheezy, this week we have some music, too. We devour it, we obsess over it, and then we call it to your attention so you can obsess over it and momentarily take your mind off the dark reality in which we find ourselves. Wheezy, what do you have for us this week? Uh, So this week I've been, like, obsessing over the new Keith Urban. Keith Urban, The Speed of Now, Part 1. What's fun about uh, albums or whatever, I, I still call them albums because I feel like they're a collection of songs, which can, you know, photo album, it's still an album, but it's as many songs as you want it to be, right? Because it doesn't have to fit on whatever the parameters uh, used to be. But this current collection of songs by Keith Urban is like extremely supercharged genre busting. He just, I know he's a country artist, but he just plays all kinds of music and he's like really into like great hooks great harmonies, great melodies, and he's he's a guitar player. So it's just, it just kicks hard ass. It's on repeat in my home. I highly mm-hmm. recommend this one. He is a spectacular guitar player, and during the Country Music Awards, he did a duet with Pink that was off the charts. It wasn't even country, but it was such a great, uh, contagious song. So and that's very the talented single, guy. And that's the single from this album. So Yeah. What's that song called? One too many. Well, is this one's going to be close to our heart. I, the one I'm going to do is one that means a lot to both of us. It's the Comedy Store miniseries. It's a five-part miniseries, partway through on Showtime right now, written and produced by a guy I started with, Mike Binder, who I think was one of the youngest people ever to perform on stage at the Comedy Store at 18 years old. I think he lied about his age. We hope to get him on here to talk about it one time. But this is really wonderful. It's a story of America's most legendary comedy club, where Wheezy and I both started our comedy careers. It's been in existence for 47 years. The series brings to life the legends, the heartbreak, the history of this comedy mecca on Sunset Boulevard that gave birth to the careers of an astonishing number of talented people. All the biggest names in stand-up had their careers intersect with a comedy store, Leno and Letterman, Mark Maron. Richard Pryor, Robin Williams, Chris Rock, Andrew Dice Clay, Sam Kinison, you name it. And there are some really funny and heartbreaking stories about Freddie Prinze, told by Jimmy J.J. Walker. Jimmy is considered the first real breakout star that was discovered at the comedy store and then instantly became this global sensation. Last Sunday night was episode two, which was about the strike, the comedy store strike. The comics had to go on strike to get paid. The standoff occurred when club owners in L.A. didn't think comedians ought to get paid. They considered their clubs comedy colleges, workspaces, laboratories. The comedians disagreed. They felt that the club owners were getting rich off the door, the wait staff. Everybody else is getting paid. Why not pay the entertainment? But the part of the episode I loved, Wheezy, was the one that you and I both went through, which was the open mic night segment, which I got goosebumps watching it, having flashbacks to what a what a miserable time in your life that is, and being judged by Mitzi Shore, the owner, and trying to get passed as a paid regular. And uh, it was it's a really wonderful documentary, don't you think so? Oh, you know, absolutely. It's It really takes you there. And you and I both have our own personal experiences with it. We know a lot of the people that are in 
in the piece and I I don't know maybe you can tell your story of when did Mitzi uh did Mitzi watch your set did she did she pass you Yes yes I became that's what you do you you audition many times you do it many times but you get passed and the 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 general line is you can call in, call in for spots, meaning you're going to become a paid regular. They're going to put you on the lineup one, two, three times a week, and you will make your astonishing $15 a set. And it was they, they didn't even consider it pay. They considered it a tip. And for many of these guys, like Jim Carrey and some of the young comics, this was the only money they made. It was it was their gas money to get there. And it's, it was just a great feeling. I remember when you were made a paid regular and you called me and told me it's a huge moment in the life of a comedian because you were allowed into the inner sanctum after that. It's uh, it's pretty for amazing. Me, for me, it was really strange. I'd never met Mitzi. I've never had a conversation with Mitzi. But she would come down from her hill and she would watch the <laughs> showcasers who came on after the open micers. I had picked the number 19. There's 20 open micers and so she was there early. She saw my set and this, it was a chauvinistic environment in, in that period of time. I, it, I believe it is not currently any longer such, but the guys that she'd have male comics that worked there who were not yet paid regulars. And if a woman was passed by Mitzi, they often wouldn't tell you. I mean, that Mitzi would put your name on the lineup and they wouldn't call you and tell you that you had a set. So you would be a no-show. So there was all this kind of really kind of dark stuff that was happening to me. But I finally got a call from a comic who I won't name. And he's like, yeah, I guess you're a paid regular. And I was like, what? I, did, I had never even had a showcase. She made me a paid regular off of an open mic appearance. And then I, I, I faced this hostile pushback from all of the employees who were not yet paid regulars, and it was just a, not a great experience, not good for my confidence, and we can talk about it at greater length on a, on a future show, but yeah. I'll tell you what, that's not an out-of-the-ordinary story you're telling, because every comedian that's ever performed there, first of all, here's the bottom line, she hated Jerry Seinfeld, and he never got a spot there. Uh, second of all, uh, there's a lot of darkness in that building. I remember I went to a memorial service for a wonderfully talented comic. He was an improviser, and he was part of the comedy store players, Taylor Negron. I don't know if you knew Taylor. So they had a memorial service for him. And Sandra Bernhardt, who's really talented, just a very charismatic woman. She's had a couple of her own specials, and they made a movie out of her cabaret show. She came to Taylor's memorial service to speak, and she was introduced, and the place went crazy, and she walked out on the stage and took a couple of quiet beats and said, I hate this building, <laughs> because people have so many conflicted feelings about it. It was dark. It was light. Many people think there are ghosts in there. It goes back to when it was a Ciro's restaurant where people thought people were killed in there, so it, it, they, they should have done an exorcism in there, but... It, but it was always a sense of accomplishment to say you were a paid regular there. It was a step you wanted to take. So anyway, I highly recommend it. Uh, if you want to see uh, uh, the, the greatest comedians in the business at their most personable and less show businessy, this is a great documentary. I think you'll agree, Wies. Oh, absolutely. It's running on Showtime. Please catch it. Yeah, I wanted to talk it. about When Calls the Heart. 
So the title of the show is something that you'll never remember. So I simply call the show Mountie because <laughs> it has Mounties. It's a Hallmark Channel show, which you can now find on Netflix. It's pretty scenery, pretty people, pretty stories. It's like a bowl of frosting. It feels delicious until you hear yourself screaming, where is the cake? It's like Little House on the Prairie for white people. It's just so white. It takes place in the turn of the 19th century in Canada, a little town called Hope Valley pressed up against the Rockies. It features Lori Laughlin, the moral compass and town heartbeat, and Jack Wagner with hair so perfect he cannot bear to wear a hat. <laughs> so my husband and I are binging this. It may this. have been Lori Laughlin's last uh, employment. Well, so here, comes, here comes what I just discovered. That's why I'm so eager to share it. So my husband and I are binging this slowly because sugar rush, and we get to the season where the beacon of righteous courage and character, Laurie Laughlin, goes to prison IRL in real life. And they wrote her out of the show with a journal entry. The lead character, Elizabeth, writes, Dear Abigail has gone to tend to her ailing mother. We shall surely miss her. And poof, she is disappeared. An unceremonious dismissal of Miss <laughs> Abigail for the sin of bribing her kid into USC. If you want to do that and you have a series, it needs to be on Reels or FX. <laughs> rather than on Hallmark because she's gone. Wow. But this show is fun. This show is fun. But it's beyond entertainment now. It's historical because it's Laurie's maybe last appearance, which is fantastic. Right. And then well, that was one of the best reviews the Hallmark channels ever had. The Hallmark uh, channel, you know, just when you're ready to just look at something pretty, just yeah. the Hallmark channel. And it's all yeah. on Netflix. I don't know how many se how many seasons they've done of this because things happen on Hallmark unbeknownst to me until they show up on, on Netflix. But I also want to talk about The Circus on Showtime. Do you watch The Circus? It's my, one of my favorite shows. I just love John Holloman. He's one of the funniest, most entertaining, and most knowledgeable political talking heads on TV. If you watch nothing else this week, watch the opening minute of the cir this week's episode of The Circus because Heilman just opens with this just oh, yeah. screed of obscenities. It might be a record of F-bombs in a row on TV. It's just so great. So I'm, I'm obsessed with this political documentary series starring John Heilman, Jennifer Palmieri, Alex Wagner, and Mark McKinnon. The circus beautifully shot. It's stunning to watch, and it's several curtains deeper than what you see on cable news. It will be the historical record of this terrifyingly bizarre chapter in American history. That's a that's a fantastic way to describe the show because it's news that you know, and particularly if you're a news junkie, but it's street level. They get behind the scenes, they interview some of the key players, and each one of these people brings credibility. Holloman, you know, he's all over the place and he's he's a, he's a recurring expert on MSNBC and Jennifer Palmieri was an operative in Hillary's campaign and other Democratic campaigns and Alex Wagner I always thought was one of the smartest people on television she used to have her own show on MSNBC and then the other guy with the cowboy hat is the slightly right-leaning uh, Republican strategist that worked for a couple of Republican guys so you've got a little balance in political opinions but it's a, a fant I wish it was an hour. Doesn't a half hour seem too short? I it, wish it were an hour. And yeah. they, they edit it right up to the second. Like you're just yeah, always it's going, like yesterday's oh. news is in there already. And if you're a foodie, it opens with everyone eating. I know. Sometimes they, they, they used to start the series. They'd all go to a really hip restaurant yeah. in New York. And now and they it was eat like remotely a, and watch each other <laughs> chew on Zoom. I know. 
And then occasionally Holloman's Great Danes walk through the shots. Fantastic. Oh, the Great Danes. So great. I know. I love it. It's now, good... you wanted to talk about the, the Great American Life. I, I really want to talk about this because I think uh, our uh, talented guest is going to enjoy talking about this film with us. Maybe she's seen it, maybe not. But it's a documentary called The Great American Lie. It's on video on demand and streaming services right now. Written and directed by Jennifer Newsom, who just happens to be the first lady of the state of California. She's Gavin's wife and a very talented documentarian. I was not aware of her talent before I saw this one. The overall premise of this film is the greatest republics in the world throughout history fall when there's a collapse of the middle class. And this movie talks about the inequities in the economic system, gender and racial bias and inequity, health care inequities, which we're going to get into with our guests. Interesting points. And here's a, here's a point that is a revelation, and it would be to a lot of people. I don't think a lot of people know this, but less than adequate minimum wages affects everybody. People say, well, it's going to be hard on small business owners and everything, but it doesn't matter. We're all paying for it. So we're either going to give them a livable salary or we're going to get higher taxes. That's what it boils down to. Our terribly underserved education system. There's a heartbreaking story in there, Wheezy, about the school principal in an economically challenged city that will just tear your heart out, but it's so real and so important. And then they go to the Rust Belt in Ohio and talk about how these Rust Belt areas never recover from the collapse of the steel industry, and these people all need to be retrained uh, re in jobs. Anyway, I, I, it was a wonderful. Did you did you like it as much as I did? Yes, I really loved it. I, I really learned a lot. It was, there were a lot of concepts that I'm familiar with that, I, that I'm aware of that people, if people make a little bit more money, they spend more money and it, yeah. it, it, you know, people lately have been really angry with the phrase or a rising tide. I don't have it right. Lifts like, all boats. That's right. That's uh, right. Floats all boats. But it, okay. So it's not a cure-all concept. I get it. A lot of people need, need more. They didn't, they weren't born on the same base as you, but if we can pump more money into the economy, then everyone does better. And it's it's really hard for a lot of folks to grasp that concept because they see life as a zero-sum game. If you have something, then I don't have it. You took it away from me. And society is much more complicated and much more collaborative than that. It requires us to work together. I want a town I can walk into with stores and restaurants that are open and children that are happy. That's what I want. And if my tax dollars go towards that, what more would I buy for myself if I had all the money? I don't right. want to live on top of a hill and then come into town the way, the way they do in India, where there's high rises built on top of slums. This is, this is not what we want for America. So we're, we're all part of the same organism. Yep. And uh, well said. And uh, that also, a, a, a sliver of this film talks to something I know is very important to our guest, Kimberly Sonnen, because it's the inadequacies and the unfairness of the healthcare system and why we have to fix it. And it's also a big topic in the political climate in we, which we find ourselves. So our guest today, we're very happy to say, is Kimberly Sonnen. For 25 years, Kimberly has worked for major news, policy, and media arts organizations as a supervisor, a supervising producer, a writer, global business development director, and a communications strategist. She has project managed, 
written for, edited, and produced short film projects, exhibitions, digital series, and articles that have impacted policy and influenced legislation. She's getting the job done. Kimberly has worked with a multitude of award-winning publications. Her core focus is best practice in healthcare and public health. Kimberly is the creative director, curator, and editor of the project we're going to talk about today. Some people, everybody. It's an ongoing multiverse group exhibition. Kimberly, we're so happy to have a chance to talk to you. Oh, thank you so much for that introduction. I, I really appreciate it. And um, it's important to note that uh, all, of, all of my work, I, I'm always working with many, many, many people and collaborators. And so it's never a, a lone wolf effort. So thank you for that. It's great to be here. Well, this is, go ahead, Weezy. I was just going to ask you to describe the project, Some People, Every Body, which you, we separate the words every and body so that we, that, that we get that double entendre. Sure, sure, sure. Well, uh, Some People, Every Body was um, a project that I had been thinking about for 10 or 15 years. And um, I was personally bankrupted by medical bills and health insurance premiums, deductibles, co-pays, out-of-office costs, out-of-network costs about nearly 15 years ago now. And at the time, I thought... Um, it was my fault. You know, I was working full time. I had commercial health insurance. Um, I was working overtime, working very hard, doing everything right, as we say in this country. And um, it really uh, derailed my, my life for a little bit. And so from that experience, um, I continued with my professional work, working on many issues, maternal mortality, mass incarceration, civic engagement, um, but really, I was kind of, um, I was really kind of feeling small, you know, because I, my life was just so disrupted by that episode. Um, and it's not just the financial distress, it's the emotional distress that comes with that experience. So I had been thinking about a way to kind of not tell my own story, but talk about the larger philosophy of health in this country and globally. Um, and I asked myself, what's the best way to do that? And I think that reportage and journalism and art and stories are a good, a good starting point. It's a beautiful compilation. I have a copy of it right here. I enjoyed looking at it. Oh, thank you. Thank and you. And I can't wait to go see it live whenever galleries open back up so you can see some of these really powerful photographs live. Uh Yes, we're hoping, we're hoping to, three of the exhibitions were, live exhibitions were canceled. Unfortunately, we were going to open a show uh, May 19th at the French Embassy in Washington, D.C., but the pandemic canceled that. And then we're hoping to get it to Holy Cross in New York and L.A. We're hoping to come your way. Um, but also we want to come to smaller markets and smaller towns um, in the country as well, not just the coasts and kind of the um, economic and power corridors, if you will. But uh, we want to bring it to universities and forums and um, community centers and places like that, too. So we're hoping in 2021 to kind of throttle back up. And in the meantime, we've got a digital exhibition on Instagram at Some People, Everybody. And we're continuing the dialogue through forums like this and online and um, just we're continuing to talk about it and publish and, and talk as much as we can about our bodies of work collectively that speak to healthcare. 
Talk about what this is, though. It's a collection of written pieces, photographs, mm -hmm. art, sure. musings about similar topics. Sure. Well, the, the, uh, the project, the live exhibition experience has photographs, large, small, black and white, digital, DSLR, um, multi-format. Um, and uh, the age of the contributors ranges from 19 years old, a student in the UK, all the way to uh, a 90-year-old physician who just retired from Northwestern. And so we as a collective thought it was important to uh, put these images and put these art pieces and essays shoulder to shoulder to kind of um, communicate the, the spectrum of life and experience. And um, one of the caveats to be part of the project was to agree that we would embrace an emerging photographer who's a student with a National Geographic photographer who is a senior member of the Photo Society. And so that was a really great um, uh, decision by the group collectively because it showcases so many different experiences, you know, families and single people and dis disabled people and uh, conflict photography and more conceptual photography. And then we have um, for about six to eight art pieces and installations uh, that are um, designed by, uh, one is designed by a collective here or a company here called Alkine Studio. Uh, Crystal Hodges made that art installation. Another art installation, which was a multimedia piece about health insurance, was designed by Liviu Pisari, who's a Romanian-born uh, um, artist living here in Chicago. And we did an installation about healthcare refugees in the United States who not a lot of people not, not a term a lot of people know about or use in the, this country. So it really kind of, um, kind of just showed the breadth of human experience. And some of the work is shot, uh, you know, some of the work is journalistic in nature. And then other essays and other photographs are actually very, very personal, where the contributors wrote a personal essay about a very personal experience. Um, so in that way, it's a little bit unique, but it's, it's important to mention um, that what this show is not is as important as what it is. You know, it's not a show about illness. It's not about specifically diabetes or breast cancer or obesity or PTSD. You know, um, it's, it's really about kind of the human experience from cradle to the grave and um, and I think in the live experience, the live exhibition, we just saw this incredible response to it. Uh, nurses, physicians, people from Canada came, people came up from North Carolina and Texas, students came in to take tours, and we just got such a great response. So we're really eager to bring people together around the work in person again as quickly as we can when it's healthy to do that. Uh, your essential message is that everybody is impacted by the health of everybody. Is the COVID-19 virus an opportunity for us to better learn this truth? Yes, you know, I, I think so. I, I think, you know, you just mentioned something about um, uh, living organisms, uh, you know, that being a part of a community is, and, and being human, that we're all living organisms and also communities and towns and cities and the body politic is also a living organism. You know, we're made of, regardless of geopolitical <laughs> opinions, regardless of geographic origin, regardless of the color of your skin, we're all 
human bodies. We have blood and pumps and levers and water and uh, cartilage and tissue. And, and, you know, some people look at the body as a machine and some people look at it uh, as a more spiritual vessel. Uh, but I think in this project, we're trying to get the discussion about healthcare back to that universal body and kind of uh, redirect the conversation away from punditry and, and kind of vitriol and barbaric healthcare policy talk um, and kind of remind people that we all need health maintenance and healthcare and attention and upkeep um, from prenatal to end of life. And if we step back and, and think about that universal fragility and vulnerability, we hope with this work that we'll sh you know, move the dial a little bit on the healthcare policy debate. Because I think once we all decide collectively that healthcare is a social and economic value, then and only then can we kind of build the highway, as they say, you know, look at it as a economic um, or fiscal priority. And I'm only speaking here about the United States uh, um, in this context. But um, so these essays that everyone wrote for this project were very personal and very poignant. And um, it was a very slow measured response. A lot of the contributors and myself work on deadlines, daily deadlines, spinning plates with international deadlines. It's a very, very high octane, metabolically, um, uh, sometimes hyper, you know, uh, trade or craft, you know, journalism and art and, and writing on deadline. But in this case, I really wanted the contributors to take time and think about what they wanted to write. And so we got an essay that was very personal about not being able to afford insulin. We got images of parents who gave me permission to share photos of their children in the last days of their life. We got um, some very comedic pieces. You might know Chip Thomas, Dr. Chip Thomas. Um, he is a physician and an artist who took a, he, you'll like this, you two will definitely like this. Back in 1987, he was working um, in the Navajo Nation in the Southwest and he climbed up on this billboard that said, welcome to Pepsi country. And he climbed up on the billboard with a nurse and he painted over it. So it said, welcome to diabetes country. And wow. so he's got a big black and white photograph of that billboard in our uh, project. But the commentary about it is that here we are 40 years later and diabetes has only gotten worse. You know, the white sugar supply chain and, and our food, our food, our, our clean food issue here in the United States. It, it, you know, 40 years later, we're still having that same conversation. I want to talk about one that really blew me away and you mentioned it. Uh, this gentleman by the name of Jim Bovin, a bereavement photographer. And the, the, just the concept of that I found so interesting. He, he, he works with families of mainly children, it seems. People want to capture the final moments of a loved one's life, and more importantly, their final moments with them. And, and they invite this man in. What a, what a particular set of empathetic skills this guy must have to be able to do this. He, he's in the book because of end-of-life experiences which is part of the human experience. 
And you had to get permission to use these family photographs, I'm sure. Um, I was educated um, about what what this process is like for the parents, what this process is like for him. And for, for listeners and viewers who don't know what a bereavement photographer is, um, there's a longstanding tradition that goes back since the dawn of photography of actually taking an image of a child who is ill or a child who has passed. And um, when children are terminally ill, parents sometimes want to document the last days or the last hours, you know, when they're imminent. And it's a very fragile, delicate, words, words here fail a little bit. I'm, yeah. In his essay, he talks about the process of being invited in, not manipulating the environment, speaking in a low voice, letting the parents do the. It's really a touching piece, and I had never heard of a bereavement yeah, photographer. It's very before. delicate, and in that essay, Jim writes about his experience and how that has affected him. And he's been doing this for a very long time with hospitals and clinics up in um, the Twin Cities in Minnesota and other places as well. And he sees himself as a vessel and it's a the the key is to be invisible and to make the families comfortable and the key with any photographer as you know with dan winters and others that you know and revere is establishing that trust and allowing him to be in the most intimate place you know the most intimate moments of a family's life and they're allowing him into that space and many parents, I learned, don't share those photos ever. They certainly don't go public. Sometimes they don't look at the photos for years. And he's gotten letters years later from people saying, I'm so glad that, I took, that you took these photos. I'm so glad that we did this. But it's such a painful, unchartered territory kind of dialogue. But he is just the most, he, he, he's just the most, uh, he, I think Grace, Grace personified, and he's also a very talented photographer. But just in that process, getting to know those families and getting their trust, I'm so thankful and grateful that they allowed us to share those photos in the live exhibition and on Instagram, because I would watch in the gallery as a man or woman would go over to that body of work and then he or she would look across the gallery at the part their partner and they'd exchange this glance and i knew right away immediately that they had lost a child they just look at each other and either cry or point and and they would just be you know just flooded with emotion and also released a little bit to know that other people had gone through this experience because i think when parents lose a child no matter how many support groups you go to, no matter how many books friends send you, it doesn't help. It's still your own experience. And Jim is just a part of that whole process. And he's just the most beautiful, loving, caring man. Um, and he just takes so much responsibility or he feels such a responsibility and, and he understands the gravity of that role. So yes, that's a very, very, very poignant essay. And it's also on our Instagram feed at some people, everybody. That is profound. Yeah, Jim I Bogan in Minneapolis. Thank you for that. I want to delve into sort of political philosophy for a moment. I know that we're going to skirt the edges of it and not get, not get uh, too controversial, but 
generally speaking, and you just correct me if I have this wrong, conservatives believe in conserving. How much more are we spending long-term when we choose to unwisely conserve short-term when it comes to healthcare? Is that a trick question? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm trying question. to help people adjust. Is that a trick question? I'm trying to help people possibly adjust their thinking in terms of saving money, if that is your goal. Right. That sounds like an SAT or GMAT. <laughs> um, so so, so um, I, I would say to that, you know, right now, there's a lot of conversation about the ACA. There's a lot of conversation about sexual and reproductive health rights. There's a lot of conversation about the new Supreme Court justice who might be seated before November 10th. But if we just put that all aside for a moment and step back, you know, administration after administration in the United States just hasn't quite gotten healthcare policy right. Why? Because not everyone can access it. It's really about elevating that conversation away from punditry and statistics and polling and this barbaric, vitriolic political football that we, we I mean, it's going on right now. It's going on right now. Um, not only in the campaigns, but on Capitol Hill and across the country. And I think our aim is kind of just ask people to really think, just kind of step back and think about what healthcare is. And it's really like a highway. You know, once the United States decided that highways, I mean, physical highways, not internet highways, um, were a priority because it would keep commerce moving. You know, it was a healthy thing to do. We were the, we were the envy of the world. Nobody could understand or they were just so amazed at the sophistication and the size of our highway system here, right? And our trains at one time as well. And it really raised all ships, as you were saying earlier in the conversation with Fritz when we started the, the talk. You know, it elevated all ships. Um, and yes, there are addicts on the highway, disabled people on the highway, alcoholics on the highway, obese people on the highway, diabetics on that highway, but we mitigate risk once they're on the highway. Seat belts, drunk driving laws, um, speed limits, uh, what have you. Make sure your wheels are have air in them. And healthcare, I, I, I hope one day we get to that place where Americans assign value to healthcare in that regard because when everybody has access to it and it becomes a fiscal priority nationally, um, it, it really does leverage human potential. And when you leverage human potential, it's great for the economy. So really it's Econ 101. So if you have a if you have Coca-Cola, I'm not endorsing Coca-Cola, but if you have Coca-Cola and you want to get the price of the bottle down to one dollar, you open up the market and you you expand the market to get your costs down and your production costs down. The same applies to healthcare. So ironically, universal healthcare is capitalistic or capitalism and econ 101, which is to say if you open up the risk pool to include everyone the costs will actually come down. But right now there's so many barriers uh, to accessing it, uh, deliberate barriers. Um, but that's kind of the irony of this conversation is that you would think that we would want to open up that risk pool to include 300 million or whatever our population is right now. The census might not be accurate this year, but um, <laughs> um, so that's that's kind of what we're, we're asking Americans to think about is, 
what is the impact of erecting so many barriers to act, accessing healthcare? I yeah, happen I, to think, I'm sorry, go ahead, Weezy. Well, I was just going to add an analogy to your highway that's a little less fragrant, and that's that it's it's like plumbing. If you want to think about it like plumbing, it's not enough to have the plumbing in your house work. You want water to come to your house, and you want waste to leave your house. And if there's obstructions along the way after it leaves the property of your house, it's not coming and it's not going. And I think we just need to expand our thinking in terms of healthcare. Go ahead, Fritz. Yes. I was going to say, I think the conundrum we're in right now is that certain segments of society are scaring people about universal health care by dropping the term socialism. And as a subtitle to that, I don't think most people understand really what socialism is. It's this label. It's this hot topic. They're mistaking communism for socialism when we have socialism in our country already. Social Security, Medicare. But the other part of that is I don't know that our society can survive without us coming to a place of universal health care eventually. That's my opinion. My, my personal position is, is the same, Fritz. Um, I, think it's an I think it's sound economic policy. And we don't hear that a lot. We hear the personalization of it, or we hear this, uh, you know, this uh, fear-mongering language, which we just keep recycling year after year after year after year. It's always about sexual and reproductive health rights. It's about losing your ACA coverage, which only covers inadequately, I might add, a sliver of our population. And so we use this language, and people kind of get caught up in this vortex that's created by you know, the talking points are all created by the commercial health insurance industry. It has to factor, take away or, you know, they're going to take away your care, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, what I saw, you know, again, if we can just step back regarding this socialism or this, this political kind of lens through which Americans seem to view healthcare, even though it's the need is bipartisan um, and it transcends, it transcends all geopolitical lines, faith-based lines, everyone needs it, right? Um, you know, I saw in New York City this past spring something really inspiring. And we saw physicians in New York um, triaging coronavirus patients. And when the siege hit, literally board trustees, CEOs, executive board members, uh, administrators, they were literally heading for the hills. They were going to their beach houses. They were going to their houses in the countryside. And physicians, a really fantastic thing happened. Physicians were acting, they were all acting, and healthcare workers were all acting like emergency medicine medics, or almost like conflict medics. And when they were under siege, they weren't worrying about their PR departments, their media relations departments, their communications departments, um, their uh, marketing departments, getting permission to have a journalist come in, getting permission to speak to a journalist. They were letting journalists in on their own. They were circumventing the normal protocols um, that those departments within hospitals would ask of them. And they were calling medics, they were calling competing hospitals, quote unquote, competing hospitals for brain trust. They were calling um, uh, uh, military medics for brain trust. They were calling doctors in Italy from their, their own private home, uh, phones. They were contacting families from their own devices. They were screen, you know, using screens and iPads to communicate in the ICU with families. 
all of that is not permitted in, in a normal time. So we kind of like a levee breaking, breaking open. We witness humanity, you know, just this surge of humanity in the midst of devastating morbidity. We witnessed courage and grace and humanity at its best. People working together at any and all costs for best practice, patient safety, quality of care. And look, I know there's an ethical conversation about rationing and disability, you know, people who had disabilities and who to triage first and whatnot. I know I'm aware of that conversation, but, but for the sake of this conversation, I saw that as a really exciting moment because all of that bureaucracy, all of the health system bureaucracy, all of the managed care barriers to health, pre-authorizations, authorizations, drug formularies, all of those barriers that are erected by the commercial health insurance and major health groups came down. And so through March, April, and May, people were, physicians and healthcare workers were really operating in the name of best practice. And they weren't asking people if they had had health insurance coverage in the lobby. And they weren't asking their health insurance company if they were pre-authorized for a ventilator. They were just administering healthcare. So what did we learn from that? It remains to be seen because now as the pandemic slows a little bit, it's still upticking, but now those barriers have gone up again and those protocols have gone up again. And it's almost like we've forgotten the benefits that come with just being able to focus on care and not those bureaucratic kind of barriers to health that so many people experience, no matter what their economic status is. Well, we're going to talk about the race for uh, a vaccine after Fritz does this lovely commercial break. <laughs> okay, capitalism reigns here in this podcast. Winning season returns at my bookie. Hold for applause. Winning season means doubling your first deposit. Pretty good return. Winning season means survivor, super contests, and squares. At my bookie, it's time to celebrate the NFL season. Sign up now and make your first deposit to get a dollar for dollar match all the way up to $1,000 and grab yourself a free entry into the famed my bookie super contest to play in the contest all you have to do is pick five nfl games against the spread to have a chance at a hundred thousand dollars guaranteed in cash prizes the best part is my bookie has thousands of bets to choose from from the full nfl slate and the nba playoffs from live betting to championship futures every play you want to make is waiting at my bookie it's simple make your picks Win big, collect your cash, use the promo code MEDIAPATH, and double your first deposit now. It's a no-brainer. Your winning season begins today only at my bookie. Please? Wow, that was masterful. Uh, Kimberly, how important is cooperation, transparency, and collaboration in the throes of a pandemic where giant mountains of cash await the winner of a vaccine race? Right. Wow. Well, you know, I just, uh, I have an article in Tarbell, uh, tarbell.org coming out in the next couple of days, actually just uh, precisely about this. Um, I think it's been interesting to see biotech industry leaders, the AMA, the American Medical Association, um, whistleblowers in inside the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, and the former 
uh, director of the CDC come out and say, let's pump the brakes. Let's not go with warp speed. Let's go with a reasonable, rational, scientific speed for developing a vaccine. Um, and it remains to be seen how this process will develop. Uh, my friend did remind me the other day that we still don't have a vaccine for HIV AIDS. Um, so I think everybody's wondering, you know, if what will make people take the, in, in my view, there's three types of people. One who will take, one, one, one group of uh, persons will take the vaccine immediately. The second group of people will wait to see if it's time tested on the market for a while. Um, they're not early adopters. And then there's a third community that rejects all vaccines. Um, but, you know, we have seen around the world measles outbreaks in the Democratic Republic of Congo, in New York, in the Ukraine, uh, TB, tetanus, chaga, sleeping sickness. All of those uh, vaccine preventable illnesses are still out there, even though Americans don't think about them very often. So um, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Um, I know clinical trials wise, Johnson and Johnson and other companies have have um, been presented with some challenges this week. Um, but I think the polio eradication effort and the smallpox effort can provide a roadmap if we if we unite and if health solidarity becomes a priority, not only in this country, but around the world again. All right. Well, you know, our guest. Kimberly Sonen curated a beautiful collection. I guess you could call this a coffee table book. If you put it on your coffee table, every time you read it, you will learn something important. Sure, sure. or in your nightstand, or in your bed, yeah, anywhere, or anywhere, on the beach, or uh, um. <laughs> <laughs> no, anywhere. But I mean, there's some really interesting and different testimonies in this book. Everyone's a couple paragraphs long, some longer than others. But this one I found very interesting. Uh, Tasha Fowler, who is a playwright, you know, every day on the news or in print or in television news is a story about this pandemic of cutting that we have. Mm -hmm. But we usually associate that uh, disorder with children, late, late tweens and from 12 to and early teenagers having some emotional conflict. But Tasha Fowler is a playwright who wrote a play about her relationship with her mother and commented on her mother being the cutter, which I found so interesting. Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Well, these are interesting essays that you've that have moved you. I'm I'm uh, touched that these different stories have moved you. No, but go ahead. You were going to ask another question. No, I just was going to describe it. Again, we hear about this problem, but never somebody's mother. And what a what a horrible place for a child to be in to watch her mother hurting herself this way. Mm -hmm. And part of her commentary is the clinics where she needed to go for help wouldn't take Medicare. The health care system failed her mom. And Tasha thinks part of the failure was hers. And so I was just trying to imagine the guilt connected with this, not being able to save her mom. But truthfully, it was the healthcare system that failed her and not Tasha. Right. Gosh, that's so interesting that you you kind of dove, took a deep dive into that essay, Fritz. Um, Tasha is an extraordinary actress, playwright, director, and instructor, theater instructor. Um, she uh, has carried that weight of her mother's death um, around with her as an adult. And that essay 
illustrates how vicarious trauma and denial of care or kind of denial of care and not being able to get the help that you need impacts so many people in that circle. So there's one person that needs the care, but when somebody's denied care, it impacts their entire network, their family of choice, their family, their lover, their partner, um, their work, their colleagues. So for every person that's denied care or can't access the care that they need, right when it's so close, it's right there and the resources are available, but you just can't tap them. Um, it, it does something to people. And I think there's a, a sadness that people carry with them because they know they could have done more. And they know that, especially in the United States of America, the resources are there. We have the resources, we have the science, the research, the, the clinics, the locations, the, the experimental technology. The techn so when people can't access that, they feel a burden and they carry that with them their entire lifetime. So said that going back to my own personal experience with denial of care over 20 years, and by the way, Aetna is just taking over my, my ACA insurance on December 1st. Um, I, I would say that it, 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 um, it, it shifts something internally in people. And not only do they feel a sense of helplessness, but they also feel futility. And that futility can be very punishing because they know the resources are there, but just out of reach. And um, that can be very damaging and it can breed kind of contempt and sadness and depression and a whole host of other byproducts um, that people carry with them that manifest biophysiologically. Um, and, and like I, to take that uh, path a little further in terms of uh, this feeling of responsibility or, or guilt that can linger uh, for the remainder of a lifetime, we recently have some whistleblowers who have watched while enough was not being done or the wrong things were being done. And so they've taken it upon themselves to uh, step forward. Can you talk about, can you talk about them? Oh, wow. I'm, I'm so glad you, you brought this up. Just in the past two weeks, we've seen uh, Dr. Rick Bright from the FDA speak up about being told he needed to re remain quiet and keep the lid on all the knowledge he has as an infectious disease and vaccine effort, uh, expert. And also, I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, Dr. William Folga. Um, I don't know if I have his pronunciation right, but he was the former uh, director, revered internationally, longtime director of the CDC in the United States. And he wrote a private letter that was leaked and it called on all of us, not just the current director of the CDC, to look at this as a moral reckoning that this is a transformation opportunity to separate the CDC from politics. Um, hopefully laws will be passed next year that separate the two so that political will never again infuses what the CDC is publishing or not publishing. But this level of, pub of whistleblower um, is just, it's just historic. I mean, these are scientists and physicians who would quite quite honestly, never go public and never be public facing other than the papers that they publish. Um, but to make that kind of high profile decision um, to blow the whistle at that level is really um, a testament to them because doing that, it 
can really destabilize your personal and professional life. Um, but many people are coming out and physicians are also, they're writing letters to the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and the BBC and Scientific American and, and uh, the New England Journal of Medicine. Both of those magazines just uh, endorsed a candidate, which they've never done in the history of those publications. So we're seeing this um, kind of transformation uh, and, and a call for healthcare solidarity. And I thought it was interesting that the director general of WHO, of the World Health Organization, recently said, health solidarity is in your self-interest. You know, health solidarity is self-interest. And if you think about that, you know, if my, the strangers in my circles are healthy, it impacts me. If they're unhealthy, it impacts me. And I think my, my hope, I guess, is that this, this pandemic moves Americans to think about that a little bit, that it's not just about my health insurance or my family or illness at my doorstep or running a marathon for my illness or having a bake sale for my son's illness. It's about the whole community, as you said again, that that whole community is a living organism and you want everything in it to be healthy and well and supported and leveraged. And I just don't think bake sales and ribbons and marathons are enough in you know these days i think we have to do more and assign fiscal priority to it as a social and economic value rather than a you know a free market commodity mm -hmm. well said okay, our, our guest is uh, kimberly sonen who is the curator of a really uh thought-provoking collection called some people everybody and are they able to get this book at uh, somepeopleeverybody.com or is yes. that just where the artwork yes. is displayed? That's, that's exactly right. Uh, somepeopleeverybody.com is the site and they can buy the catalog. Um, they, that's the exhibition night catalog. It features, I think, 163 pages, more than 80 contributors, 20 physicians and medical students. And um, if you go to a little bit to the right and then do a pull down, I'm... I'm not able to see because of the Zoom, but if you go all the way to the right and pull down um, shop, I think I can't see, but I, I think I know where you are. Um, if you go to shop, there's a, a place to purchase the catalog. And um, and if we- I just wanna do one before we run out of time, Kimberly. I, I wanna do, I mean, there's some really interesting uh, personal philosophies about not only healthcare, but life. Mm. I that's, love that's digital exhibition, uh, I, right? Right there. Yeah, there it is. Hey, there's the Media Path logo. I bet that's a great podcast. That's right. We like, <laughs> anyway, we like cross promoting and giving yeah. shouts out to other great organizations. I love that. Thank you. Erica DeFore is an artist, and she has a series of art. You're going to love this, Wheezy, uh, commemorating <laughs> her opinion that self help books are modern day Bibles and people are trying to live like a Ted talk kind of a life. In fact, these books and ideas do exactly the opposite of what you want them to do. They give us false and unattainable hope. I just thought that's just a great, because there's no way you can live up to some author's expectations of how you want to live. I just thought that was a great uh, topic for an essay. Talk about Erica DeFore. Right, right. Oh, Erica DeFore is uh, an artist and um, maker and photographer and painter and sculptor here in Chicago. And she has this ongoing project 
where she destroys self-help books. In <laughs> of I love years. it. She drops them in acid. I'd be out a lot of money. She tears them up. She deconstructs <laughs> them. She burns them. And this is an ongoing project. And so for the Some People Everybody project, she did modern day Bibles, which were these paper mache heads torn and the pages were torn off. And, and they were, she sculpted these floating heads, you know, and so, so people would walk through them and kind of zigzag through and, um, you know, do more yoga, eat more blueberries, yeah. <laughs> be more stable in your relationships, you know, yeah. go on a hike, you know, all of this <laughs> stuff, don't drink coffee, you know, mm -hmm. it's just, and, and Anthony, Anthony Robbins, is that his name? Tony, Tony Robbins, Robbins yep. and, and Oprah Winfrey. And, and, and so she just, she just has this fantastic sense of humor and she just goes for the gut, you know, and um, it's just fantastic. I, I encourage you to follow her, Erica DeFore, and she sells a lot of her art um, to uh, collectors all over the, all over the world, actually. And um, that was, that's one example of a hard hitting um, piece, but it also made people laugh and look at each other in agreement, <laughs> mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. because we came up in the nineties and we were just, everybody was drinking that Kool-Aid, you know? So yeah. <laughs> and it gives you permission to not have to hold yourself to that kind of a standard. Exactly. That's the point. Yeah. It's fantastic. And on the other side, you know, um, this couple came in one day to the gallery and they had a 28 year old, um, uh, uh, intellectually challenged son, a, a disabled son. And, um, and they came through and they, they were standing in front of Erica DeFore's, uh, modern day Bibles. And he started crying. The father started crying. And he said, you know what? All of our life, we've been told what to do with our son and how we need to be and how we don't need to be and what we need to do and what we don't need to do. And he, she, he said, I'm so tired of it. He said, you know why my son is doing well now? Because we came together and we decided what was best for him. He, he contributed to that decision. And, and he said, this is just so cathartic to see, you know, and so in the most surprising ways, I never anticipated that reaction from that couple, but just in the most surprising ways, you never know how this work or the, these art installations are gonna impact people in the, in the deepest ways. Um, so yeah, that's another, that's another great piece. I, I really appreciate the, the essays and pieces that you, uh, that really um, were of interest to you. Well, I, I, I can't wait for the pandemic to be over so you can take your show on the road and expose a large number of people to the actual pieces of art. But in the meantime, it's just a great collection, really thought-provoking, and never more important to be the topic of discussion in every family than it is right now after we watch the Supreme Court hearings and my head exploded at 10 o'clock this morning. I so. know. <laughs> well, November 10th are the oral arguments for the ACA, I believe, and um, we'll see. If they kick it down to Texas, um, it's okay. If, if, if the, the, this new Supreme Court justice is on the bench and she's the tilting vote, it's okay. Because if the ACA is dismantled, then we will have even more people who are uninsured, even more people who are going through bankruptcy, even more. And all of those people are eventually going to come over to the universal health care side. Mm -hmm. Slowly, slowly, we're going to make this. To deep survive. Deep. Yep, exactly right. <laughs> interesting. Do you have any takeaways for us as we go through this, this pandemic where we're doing everything possible to uh, preserve physical health and it's impacting emotional health? Wow. Um, 
there's a few essays on Instagram at some people, everybody that talk about mental health. Um, George Etheridge is a phenomenal photojournalist in New York City who's up and coming and he does a lot of work on mental health. Melissa Spitz is a fantastic uh, photographer who has, she has an amazing body of work on mental health, Melissa Spitz. Um, I encourage you to visit their personal websites as, as well as some people, everybody. If you go to the somepeopleeverybody.com website and you click on the contributors, you can go to their personal websites and see their prints and their bodies of work and their ongoing projects related to health. Ed Cashy does work on kidney disease. Ruben Salgado Escudero does work on solar panel, uh, solar power, which helps with, uh, with respiratory illnesses and a number of other illnesses. Um, this is, yes, this is it. This is Melissa Spitz and this is her mom. She's schizophrenic and she documents their relationship and her life. It's called You Have Nothing to Worry About. And Melissa has cultivated an international following of people who have family members who um, uh, have mental illness. And she also talks about her own struggles of being in a family, you know, navigating that relationship and staying healthy herself. Um, uh, Kat Gwen, right out in LA, Kat Gwen, uh, 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 does projects or um, works uh, produces a lot of work on her experience as a cancer patient. And then we've got four disabled artists in our project, Nolan Ryan Tro, Antonio Davis, David McCauley, Rebecca Torres, and they all talk a little bit about mental health as well. So as far as tips go, I'll, I'm like Erica. I don't like to give advice other than drink water, get, get enough sleep, <laughs> <laughs> eat healthy. Let me um, write that down. Right? But, um, but if, again, if you click on the names, if you go to our website and click on the names of each contributor, you'll see that they're just, they all have a niche and um, a lot of them have worked on, including myself, have, have published work on mental health. Well, thank you so much for everything that you do and that you contribute to our, our, the ecosystem of, of health and well-being. It's, it's greatly appreciated uh, by those of us who get to take advantage of deep thinkers like you applying yourselves to our health. And I, I'm, I'm very appreciative. Oh, uh, you're doing the good work, Miss Kimberly. Keep it up. Thank you so much. And, and, and I can't speak highly enough about our entire group. They're an extraordinary group of journalists, essayists, physicians, medical students, and artists. And I encourage you to look at all of their work and, and follow us on Instagram. We're always posting updates and new work and new essays. So, And we will see you in L.A., hopefully, Hope so. in 2021, right? Absolutely. Thank you for all the, the healing curation. We would love for you to join us online on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at Media Path Pod, and on Facebook, where we are Media Path Podcast. You can find full episodes with all kinds of bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, Media Path Podcast on YouTube. I want to thank our guest, Kimberly Sonin. Our team includes Dina Friedman, Francesco Demanda, Mosey Masenko, John Maddox, Bill Filipiak, Thomas Hubble, Brian Benna, and you. I am Louise Palanker here with Fritz Coleman, and we will see you along the media path.